We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And now New Galaxy Broadcasting presents Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition, a program addressing the grave challenges to human and citizen rights in America and the rest of the world. How can we, the people of Earth, take back the power and privileges granted to us by God and address so significantly in the Declaration of Independence? Our rights are inalienable, that is, given by God and incapable of being taken away from or given by another. These rights are the basis of liberty, the foundation of all life and happiness. The Coalition of Planetary Empowerment is an organization designed to give its members tools and information to empower them personally, in relationships and in business and employment, but also to give them a voice and the ability to help transform political and corporate governance to support the true needs and desires of people throughout the world. Inalienable and Free focuses on the need for government and corporate business interests to be responsive to the will and desire of their constituents and consumer shareholders. Good morning, world. This is Johnny Blue Star. Welcome to Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition. I've got some special news. For me, it's a really big deal. We've had 30 programs now. This is the 31st of Inalienable and Free, which was it was supposed to be the runner-up to the development of a social network infrastructure for the coalition and organization we're uh, developing. This is at the very beginning. We finally have, have come through with a crowdfunding project, which is at GoFundMe.com. If you're interested in supporting a social media network based on a universal concept of spirituality, which embraces all people committed to the equality of all men and their inalienable rights under God, this may be a unique opportunity. Why unique? Because although there will be a place to dialogue, there will also be a social network designed to take action, to find and support virtuous people for elected positions in government to help them with campaigns, to collectively develop initiatives for legislation, regulatory rules and enforcement, and so forth, to bring back, to bring to elected officials and agencies and to learn how to do these things that will enable a large number of people at one time to address existing officials with numbers, numbers of voters, that mean that if they are concerned about their electivity, then they better at least listen. There's so much to do in this project. It's, it's, for me, it's uh, a real gigantic commitment after years of writing all kinds of things. I realized that my commitment had to lie somewhere else, and not just in, in my career and in, in, in this kind of entrepreneurial thing that I'm, I'm still on the track, but I am really on that track because I want this project to work. And uh, if you're interested, please go to GoFundMe.com forward slash coalition for planetary empowerment. And there's dashes between coalition for and planetary empowerment. Uh, GoFundMe forward slash coalition for planetary empowerment. Or go to GoFundMe and look that up. Uh, it's there and uh, any contribution would be appreciated. Anything. And if not, just share the link. That would be wonderful. As usual, Don Newsom, the founder and owner of BBS Radio, is with us today, helping us to produce this program. So before we begin, Don, give us an update on some of the bolder new capacities of BBS Radio. Well, I'd be glad to. Thank you very much. Sure. 
Well, currently, uh, BBS Radio has finally uh, finished off uh, putting together its new video system, and uh, we've tested it out. It works perfectly, better than ever. I mean, we can now record and stream in extremely high definition, the highest definition, uh, I think, possible. And uh, we can not only record it, but stream it in that perfect quality. And so it's it's really a, a blessing for us. We've uh, run a couple of video productions now with it. And it was quite seamless, worked perfectly, um, and we're going to start taking on a lot more video shows. We hope, hope to actually bring a video channel uh, to the network. Once we get about seven regular weekly video productions, we'll add a video uh, station and, uh, you know, the full-featured video station with uh, um, the view, the viewer or the player and so on. And uh, we hope that that's going to be relatively soon. So we're excited, yeah. Well, I, I hope we'll be a part of it. Uh, that particular part of it. I saw the um, very beginning, the first one with John Perkins, and that was a wonderful interview. Uh, I can't think of a better person to do it, to to initiate something with, you know? That was a great interview. In fact, I, I, it, it rather stunned me. I mean, John Perkins, you know, I, I knew of him from, you know, when he talked more about the economics and so on. Yeah, but the, when he started uh, getting into shamanism, I was stunned. And I love that man. I, he, he just endeared himself to me, John Perkins. He's kind of like now an idol of mine. I I, I mean that. Just really, really a, a wonderful wow. interview and a really cool guy. Well, the thing that I like, uh, and uh, of course I started this before I really knew about him, but I have always felt there should be alignment between politics and spirituality. And he's certainly engaged in both, hasn't he? And but the thing is, he's created that that uh, dividing line between the two, and now he's really into creating a new dream, like he said, building a new dream, a new ideology for America. Um, and I love that idea, one that is all encompassing, like you say, with uh, people from other sides of the borders and around the world and being able to really bring that into your heart, bring that into the hearts of the American people and do something new, something better, something different, something that really is of a spiritual, loving, neighborly quality. And that hit me hard. So I must say it was a great interview. I thought so too. Anyway, we'll get, we'll get back to the uh, topic of the day. (laughs) Today's show is part of a series called Recipe for a Perfect World, a Geopolitical Perspective. We have developed different sets of programs in the series. The current one is, is the second part of creating a political base. The first one dealt with racism rehearsing the path to tyranny, and it specifically dealt with Afro-American bigotry, a form of racism that Trump had some practice with prior to his ascendancy to the presidency. This program is called the Boundless Scapegoating of the Trump Administration. We will begin to look at the field aid Trump has had in finding scapegoats. But we will begin with a bit of follow-through and augmenting of our last show's theme, which focused on the Afro-American form of racism. First, let's capitulate the steps necessary to create this kind of a following, basically a cult following, where people have lost their ability to discriminate, check facts, and really follow a leader based on certain uh, assumptions about who they are compared to other people. In order for an authoritarian leader to create a political base powerful enough to assist them in getting elected, 
he must provide a strong targeted appeal to much of the electorate. To do this, he must create or relate to fear in the hearts of the would-be supporters. Fear is the first of three steps necessary to create a loyal follower of a religious or political cult. If the fear is dormant, meaning to exaggerate it, if the fear itself has no basis whatsoever, he'll create it. Good example of this are false flags of different types. So first fear. Then second, a story which targets the cause or agent that generated this fearful situation. This often means targeting certain minorities. They caused it. His appeal needs to be very clear. And it, as in this first step, he will capitulate into distorting or capitulating or uh, re redoing the facts. Thirdly, we're beginning the base to realize that the authoritarian leader has the unique potential to help solve the problem. He's clearly superior and so are his ideas. He's the one to trust and believe in. He has the secret knowledge. If he's successful, then he may succeed in not only catering to the prejudice inherent in components of his obvious potential base. For instance, in Trump's case, a white male, essentially blue-collar worker, but, expand, but then expanding this to those outside his base who have not yet succumbed to bigotry because they had no reason to. People have made comparisons of Trump to Hitler. Perhaps that's unfair. Still, our present administration is similar in one respect to Hitler, choosing to emphasize minorities as targets to rouse the extreme wrath of the base, but then folding other minorities into this portfolio of profoundly cruel aggression. As mentioned in the first of the series, we looked at Trump's attacks on Afro-American citizens decades before and after his bid to the presidency. Hitler focused on the Jews, but then was happy to pr prosecute Catholic priests, homosexuals, Freemasons, gypsies, and others. Trump targets Muslims and Hispanics primarily, followed by Afro-Americans, Native Americans, the Palestinians, the LGBT community, the women, the disabled, the poor, and so forth, sometimes directly but sometimes in subtle ways to his policies by depriving them of funding or helpful programs. Let's begin our conversation with Amorosa. Two shows ago, we had an interesting discussion revolving around Omarosa's signing of an NDA, which prohibited her from talking about her experience in the Trump administration while she was in the White House. I and my associate both thought that she had signed it, and the debate was over whether it was somehow immoral to hold her to it, owing to freedom of speech and the need for public knowledge of the reality of former government performance versus the need for honesty under almost any kind of condition. I will not get into the depth of that conversation, but let's listen to a relatively new tape or clip um, explaining that she never signed the White House NDA because she was familiar with the two others that she had signed previously for the campaign and for The Apprentice show. But much more importantly, she explains how her state of mind in the Trump administration, which led her, which led her to overlook grave problems affecting the natural, national interest. In a, in a way, uh, she's a little bit like Don Perkins. And uh, so far as Don Perkins was deeply entrenched in being an economic hitman, and he tried to uh, to change things for the worse because he was into the same sort of deception about the value of of uh, of the things that he was doing, uh, which involved going into other countries, funding them, knowing that they would not be able to pay the debt, and then being able to to clean up on their resources uh, and things that were valuable uh, to our country and to the corporations that were uh, were basically behind everything in the World Bank and so forth. And then at one point he realized, what was I doing? Oh, my God. And he uh, he, he became a transformed man going all around, all around the world explaining how this terrible thing of economic hitman 
and this uh, this robbing of other countries works. Well, anyway, uh, Omarasa, she uh, publicly stated that uh, the reason that she had fallen was that she had succumbed to uh, following a cult leader. Here's what she said about the NDA in 87. You also say, uh, Omarosa Monigo, that you saw a lot of corruption oh, in yeah. the White House. Can you give us one specific example? One of the biggest examples is this NDA that they came to us with and said that we couldn't talk about certain things that we saw. They wanted us to sign it, and they wanted to use that to kind of put fear in us to, if we saw things, to not blow the whistle, for instance, on things that we saw. And they demanded that everyone sign that. They didn't allow us to take it to lawyers to review. They wouldn't even allow us to email it, particularly to my lawyer. They said I had to sign it in the room right there and then and there. And I thought that that certainly was unethical, if not illegal. But the president uh, tweeted today that you've signed uh, a non-disclosure agreement. He's absolutely right. I signed a non-disclosure agreement back in 2003 for The Apprentice. I also signed one for the for uh, the campaign. I never signed that draconian NDA that they presented to me when I walked into the White House because I knew from my prior time in the White House, this was my second tour of duty working in the White House. I worked for the Clintons prior, that this was not something that was acceptable. Here's what she said about her involvement in the cult of Donald Trump in 88. I wasn't the head of presidential personnel in the White House. And so that assertion is kind of absurd when you think about it. Women, the president's views of women, you write a number of disturbing things throughout the book, misogynistic things. But again, you write you had a blind spot. I did. Time after time after time. I did. I also How write about being a you part You seem of, very calm about it now, but... Well, because, you know, I also write about being a part of what I call the Trump world cult, a cult of personality, and I was caught up in it. And I is it actually, brainwashed? I mean, what is it? I think when you're a part of a cult, you don't realize that what you're doing is completely against the grain, and it's undermining the very fabric of our democracy. I had no idea that supporting Donald Trump in the way that I was was causing so much damage until I was on the outside, and I had a good way to take a view of what was happening. But I accept full responsibility for what I did, and I have great regret for that. But is it, 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 again, looking at it from the outside, it looks as if you're a, a, a woman of intelligence, a woman who could make her own decisions, but it's almost as if you were, you're saying you were blindly following instructions. I was. I was. You know, I lost my father. I talk about this in the first two chapters. My father was murdered when I was seven. And so in some ways, I was looking for a father figure, and I found that in Donald Trump. Here was a very successful billionaire, a real estate mogul, and I wanted to model myself after him. I was aspirational in the sense of looking at his success. And so, yes, I followed after some of the tenets that he outlined in so many of his successful books and some of the things that he enforced to be successful. But I was going down the right, wrong path. You know, look at, look at what she just said. She wanted to be a billionaire like Donald Trump. Granted, she did not have, she did have more of a shot than other people. Despite her extreme poverty growing up, she clawed her way to great opportunities, something she should be congratulated for. But most people are not that blessed. But having a, but having a billionaire, despite the wealthy background growing up, talk to his base in a complimentary way, so directly, so intimately, as, a, as Trump does to his following just makes the American dream seem so much closer for so many of these people. They think 
He's one of us. We can be one of them. And given their prejudices, but also their naivete about his character, they buy into his narrative. But for most of those people who think they're the way that the way the way to get there is to persecute disenfranchised minorities, that's the road to riches. They'll never get one drop closer to success through this strategy. Well, they might if they were a certain type of politician. The base, like many blue-collar and lower-income Republicans, buy into the trickle-down theory and accept the candidate for government who, who they believe is powerful enough to create the conditions to allow the trickle-down theory to work. And here was one of them, gigantically wealthy, very, very famous, a real estate mogul who had his own reality show, willing to stand in front of them and speak their language and prove his sincerity by so much of his actions, particularly his war against minorities, while the need for the immediacy of some of his economic promises seemed to vanish in the blaze of his glorious presence. Not that we aren't doing better. We could argue about that, but there are things like the trade war initiative and uh, the tax cut and other things that are basically in the healthcare thing that he's proposing that maybe the consequences will be much more devastating than they think. Another African-American woman, Maxine Waters, a strong advocate uh, of Trump impeachment, was insulted by Trump in a very uh, powerful way, I would say. But Maxine is a steadfast fighter for what she believes in, and she does not back down so easily. Let's play uh, N90. Ahead of tomorrow's special election in Pennsylvania, the president flew there to the district over the weekend to whip up support for Republican congressional candidate Rick Saccone. The president also used his rambling 73-minute speech to attack the media, to praise countries that execute drug dealers, and to go after one of his most vocal critics in Congress, Democrat Maxine Waters. We have to defeat Nancy Pelosi. And Maxine Waters, a very low IQ individual. Never see her? Do you ever see her? you ever see her? We will impeach him. We will impeach the press. But he hasn't done anything wrong. It doesn't matter. We will impeach him. She's a low IQ individual. You can't help her. Joining me now is Congresswoman Maxine Waters, Democrat from California. Um, Congresswoman, the president has said this twice about you in the past week. I wanted to uh, give you an opportunity to respond. Well, you know, there is no response. Everybody knows who this bully is. This president has attacked more women, more individuals, name calling. I mean, look at this. Uh, not only has he talked about Senator Warren, called her Pocahontas, he called Hillary crooked, uh, he's calling me low IQ, uh, he called Rubio little. I mean, this is what we expect of him. I just wonder what took him so long. And so, since we know who he is, and the fact that he is, you know, calling people names constantly, and talking about the media in the way that he does, and calling people SOBs, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not surprised at all. All I know is this. If he thinks he can stop me from talking about impeach 45, he's got another thought coming. I am not intimidated by him. I'm going to keep saying that we need to impeach him. And I am so depending on our special counsel, Robert Mueller, uh, to connect the dots so that he can prove the collusion. And of course, we've seen obstruction of justice just playing out before our very 
very eyes. So this is a dishonorable human being. He is a con man. He came to this job as a con man. I really call him, uh, you know, Don the con man. And so that's who he is. That's what we expect. And uh, I'm not surprised at all. It's interesting to listen to your reaction to this because um, it almost sounds like you and and other folks uh, who work in, in Washington don't even it doesn't even land anymore when he does this kind of thing because it has become so rote. Is that is that a fair characterization? Oh, that's, that's absolutely fair. Uh, we expect to wake up every morning uh, to him calling somebody else uh, another name or telling another lie. Um, he has no credibility. And so, no, we're not surprised about him you know, calling names and talking about my IQ. He might say or do anything. It's expected. Well, one of the areas that Trump was disturbed by, uh, specifically, as you can tell, was uh, her call for his impeachment. Um, that uh, and, and was was what she said. You know that he's the other thing that he's mad about was her saying to disturb members of his administration responsible for the separation of families and the border. She didn't start it, but she was saying that that they should. In fact, this was controversial. Hounding persons like Press Secretary Sanders, Stephen Miller at their restaurants or at their home. I'm not going to defend or attack this strategy. But merely to point out that these people were compliant in promoting and executing a grave crime against humanity, irresponsibly taking children from their parents with such a sloppy protocol that they possibly could not be found easily or at all and could not be rejoined to their parents. That's only one phase of the, bu- of the abuse, but we're going to move on because we've got a lot to do today. We're going to now take play a message about our web design services, followed by a clip about Ken Ede's fascinating novel about freedom of the press. Ken Ede is an attorney who's written something like 18 mystery novels that almost unilaterally focus on matters alerting the public to dangers to our liberties and safety perpetuated by the corporatocracy. Finally, a spiritual song from Life Force, a band that has advocated for so many years so many decades for peace and freedom. So we'll be playing in sequence C18, KEB4, M46. This is Johnny Blue Star, CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises, a media content development company. My company under the direction of our technical director, Hassan Khan, specializes in the development of user-friendly WordPress sites. These may be used in manifold ways to promote products and services to become a platform, a forum for your ideas, or your special interests or fascinations, or to enhance your personal image. To learn more about New Galaxy, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.newgalaxyenterprises.com and fill out the contact form. Spy Files is another riveting component of Kenneth Eads' Brent Marks' legal thriller series. When Michael Fine, a young journalist, asked Brent Marks to assist him in a freedom of information request, classified documents are accidentally released to him by the FBI. When they're not returned, there's big legal trouble afoot for him and for his attorney, who are facing criminal prosecution. The story, however, starts off with a murder. Here's an excerpt. The Spy Files by Kenneth Ede Read by Maxwell Zener When Chan approached the lab, he could see that the lights were on. That's strange. I'm sure I turned them off. Maybe it's the janitor. He unlocked the lab door and startled the man who was sitting at his station. Chan's monitor was illuminated. What are you doing there? 
The man rose from his seat and looked to his right and then to his left, deciding whether to run or stand his ground. Chan approached him. I'm calling security. You shouldn't be here. Just back off, Chinaman, and I won't have to hurt you. Chan put his right hand on his stun gun, searching for the nerve. With his left hand, he picked up the phone and started to punch in the number for security with his thumb. Put it down, Chinaman. Chan looked up to see the man pointing a gun right at him. He set down the phone slowly. You're going to shoot me? Just walk away and nobody gets hurt. Just walk away. You didn't see anything. Chan took two paces back. He bent to pick up his briefcase. Leave it. Just keep moving. Chan let go of the handle of the briefcase. The man approached him slowly. Chan took another two steps back and the man took several steps forward. Chan put his hand on the door and the man gently pushed him through it. Taking his chance, Chan rotated, slammed the taser against the man's body and let it rip. The man dropped the gun and staggered back, bracing himself against a table. Chan came back into the lab and lunged for his briefcase. With a surge of energy and anger, the man tackled Chan, slamming him back against a lab table. Chan fell hard, hitting his head. Chan lay there still. The man panicked and felt his carotid artery. There was no pulse. Oh, shit. What a mess. He pulled his cell phone out of his pocket. From The Spy Files by Kenneth Eade Read by Maxwell Zener. I can feel your quiet worry when you look into my eyes. You think what will save our world from dying? From war, from greed and lies Just remember love is power and know We are the light I can sense your deep compassion Rising from your heart and soul For all those hungry, lonely children Remember who we are and share your light and love. Got to hold on to the truth, dear. In the silence points the way. Simply trust your intuition. It's God's voice guiding us each day. Face to face with our God self 
Just remember we are spirit and know we are mentioned Colin Kaepernick in our last program, the NFL, Colin Kaepernick in our last program, the NFL football player who led the players in kneeling while the American national anthem was played. He's had a little bit of a breakthrough uh, in a a lawsuit. Let's uh, let's play N92. Well, Colin Kaepernick started a national conversation about social justice and patriotism when he took a knee at Levi Stadium during the national anthem. And he says because of that, no other team would hire him, and he left the 49ers. Today, an arbitrator ruled, yes, there is enough evidence the NFL colluded to keep Kaepernick from playing again. KPIX5 anchor Ken Bastida is on the field at Levi Stadium and tells us what happens next. Ken? Yeah, this could get really, really interesting, uh, Liz and Alan. It was in this very stadium, Levi Stadium, that Colin Kaepernick first took a knee during the national anthem. And he claims because of those protests, the teams are holding back from hiring him right now, signing him to any kind of a contract. Today, though, he scored a huge legal victory. An arbitrator, as you mentioned, chosen by the NFL and the Players Association, ruled that Kaepernick's collusion case against the league will move forward now. The arbitrator believes there's enough evidence that uh, they can show that the league and its owners possibly colluded to keep Kaepernick off their teams. Now, Colin Kaepernick became a free agent in March of 2017. He has not been offered a contract or even a workout with any team. And some owners say the 30-year-old is no longer in his prime. That's the reason. Others say he is too expensive to sign up as a backup. Uh, whatever, after today's ruling, Kaepernick's lawyer, Mark Garagos, could end up questioning NFL officials and owners in trial-like format. On the NFL side, the last thing I think they want is to have owners uh, sitting in court answering questions about this. Um, so as powerful as they are, uh, they certainly don't want to be bothered by this. Uh, the owners have other things to deal with, and it's only going to be embarrassing for them, uh, even if it turns out in their favor. It's on the sidelines say that the NFL probably will try to reach some sort of a settlement with Kaepernick so the legal proceedings do not have to play out. Meanwhile, KPIX5's Andrea Borba is live with how fans here at Levi's are taking the news about Kaepernick. Andrea? 
Well, Ken, this was the field, of course, made infamous by Colin Kaepernick, which suddenly became a point of political discourse. It is not hard to this day to find people who are wearing his jersey inside Levi's Stadium. There are plenty of people who do support his decision to take a knee, and they also support that of the arbitrator. Well, they should let him play, you know. I mean, he's got the right for a voice and his opinion, so they should respect that. It frustrates me that he is not playing and Eric Reed is not playing. And there are other players that are kneeling or taking a stand, and we need to recognize that. We need to recognize definitely just the things that are going on in America. Now, of course, there are many people who do not feel that way about the former 49ers quarterback, but the subject is still so volatile and toxic. People do not want to talk on camera about their feelings about Colin Kaepernick and his decision and, of course, about today's announcement from that arbitrator about Kaepernick's collusion suit going forward against the NFL, Ken. Well, so here's another little... Um, sort of a summary of what, what's been going on with the Afro, Afro-American and racism and, his, and Trump's base and everything. Uh, with John Lemon, who's also, Don Lemon was also attacked by, by Trump in one of his Twitters. So this is N91. The president finally weighed in on the controversy over Roseanne Barr's racist tweet and just couldn't resist making it all about Donald Trump. Yes, President Trump, saw that undeniably racist tweet comparing Valerie Jarrett to an ape, and he decided he was due an apology. Tweeting, quote, Bob Iger of ABC called Valerie Jarrett to let her know that ABC does not tolerate comments like those made by Roseanne Barr. Gee, he never called President Donald J. Trump to apologize for the horrible statements made and said about me on ABC. Maybe I just didn't get the call. There does seem to be something he didn't get. The president seems to think he's the victim here. He thinks he deserves an apology, even though he's never apologized for one word of this. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! That is pure racism. And the president is cynically using that racism to appeal to his base. We're learning tonight that in a phone call last fall with Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, the president said, quote, this is a very winning, strong issue for me. That is according to the Wall Street Journal. Just another example of this president framing everything in terms of whether or not it is a win for him. Well, um, let's take a break and uh, let you know something about my company's mission as a media content developer, followed by some information about Dr. Hugo Rodier, who I have worked with in the past and I hope to work, work with again on his uh, amazing show, Integrated Informatic Health.
He has a free blog, however, which includes a monthly summary of critical cutting-edge uh, articles in medical journals. Uh, Dr. Rodier is an MD, an integrative medical doctor who specializes in gastrointestinal problems with an emphasis on nutrition. He's also an extraordinary author of many books. One very interesting one is called Gut Health. Find his books on Amazon. Finally, we'll wrap up our break uh, with a portion of Love Never Withers, the second song that composer Edgar Aarons and I wrote. I wrote the lyrics. Uh, we wrote the music for singer Patricia Welch, who called this genre neoclassic. C2, C1, and M3. My company, New Galaxy Enterprises, is a California corporation specializing in the creation of media and promotional content. We are focused on original, innovative projects that are good for humanity. These projects could be nonfiction books or novels, fictional screenplays or documentary content, websites and website content, commercial advertising content for print, audio, or video products on the internet, television, or radio, musical scores for advertising, television, or film, video, audio editing, etc. We want to promote products and projects that support the environment, encourage a healthy experience in living, developing, nurturing, and useful technology, and offering platforms for positive, socially constructive entertainment or informative, transformative media. Our experience in creating a variety of products like this is rather vast, and we offer client-based and collaborative products, as well as the opportunity of active investors to join us in the creation and promotion of proprietary products, some of which are in latter stages of development. For more information, go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. That's www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. If you're interested in talking to us, just fill out the contact sheet and we will get back with you. Are you confused about so much information on health issues? Do you find it hard to trust the sources of conflicting advice? Try Dr. Rodier's newsletters and blogs based on the latest information published in the best medical and nutritional journals. There's no charge for subscribing. Just log on to hugorodier.com. That's H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R.com to do so or to download Dr. Rodier's latest publications.
Well, back to the real world. We'll now show, we'll now turn to other groups that Trump has targeted. Um, and, but, but actually, let's look at the, the biggest one. <laughs> this, this is, uh, actually something from, uh, um, from MTB. And it's, uh, it's, uh, is GOP becoming a cult? And, Folks, in the last 24 hours, we've seen multiple warnings from inside the Republican Party that President Trump isn't just overtaking the GOP. He's turning it into something that resembles a cult. All of a sudden, that word is starting to pop up more and more, and it's all coming from the right. Here's Republican Senator Bob Corker earlier today. It's becoming a cultish thing, isn't it? It's not a good place for any party to, to end up with a cult-like situation as it relates to uh, to to a president that uh, happens to be of purportedly of the, of the same party. Then there's Republican Congressman Mark Sanford. He's someone who has warned the party about becoming a cult of personality. He did show on this show, but his criticisms of the president just cost him his job. Sanford was defeated in his primary last night after the president told the base not to vote for him. Well, here's Sanford's warning to his party as he conceded the race last night. What we're about as a nation is not being for or against one personality. Again, we're a nation of laws and not men, as the founding fathers said. And here's what an ideological conservative commentator, Eric Erickson, said about Sanford's defeat. Quote, Mark Sanford losing in South Carolina is pretty much proof positive that the GOP is not really a conservative party that cares about limited government. It is now fully a cult of personality. There's that word again, folks. And if those warnings are right, Katie, bar the door. If enough Republican voters have a cult-like view of President Trump or frankly embrace his views of everybody else, ask yourself what that means for the guardrails of American democracy. It's Congress's job to act as a check on the president. But in the wake of Sanford's loss, this was the message from some Republicans. Donald Trump's popularity with Republicans is unprecedented. So with all politics being local, if you're not on the same page as the president uh, and 85, 90 percent of your base is, you can see where that could cause a problem. Look, in, in my district, uh, I got 70 percent of the vote in the general election. The president got 66. If we get in a fight, he probably keeps his 66 and I keep my four. I love that, Tom Cole. He'd keep his four. He's probably right. Can you blame them for being worried? They've seen some of the most conservative voices, pure conservative voices, sort of the definition pre-Trump, lose because of insufficient loyalty to Trump. And folks, if this is the president now, you have to now start thinking differently about the consequences of saying, ousting Mueller, firing Rod Rosenstein, pardoning Michael Cohen, using the Justice Department to settle scores, limiting press freedoms, flexing your executive authority, you name it. Why would the Republican Party stand up against any of that if they see that standing up to him on just one thing can bring an end to your political career, no matter how truly old school conservative you are, like Mark Sanford. Hello, YouTubers. If you're watching this, it means you've checked out our channel. So thank you. Now do me a favor. Subscribe by clicking on that button down there. Click on any of the videos to watch the latest interviews and highlights from MTP Daily and MSNBC and get more Beat the Press content every morning in the First Read newsletter. If you're tired of content that you don't know anything about where it came from, you don't have to have that problem with us. NBC News, MSNBC, 
MTP? Well, um, now let's uh, look at some uh, look at some other stuff here. Other groups that Trump has targeted. Perhaps too much for just one program, but Trump is very smart and very eclectic, and his own personal prejudices do not in any way muffle his willingness to use any type of bias in his service to his goal. He's willing to use that type of bias to mobilize a base that could potentially elect him to the highest office in the land and keep him there. To remind us again, here's a clip from his presidential campaign announcement in 83. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs. They're bringing crime. They're rapists. And some, I assume, are good people. But I speak to border guards, and they tell us what we're getting. And it only makes common sense. It only makes common sense. They're sending us not the right people. It's coming from more than Mexico. It's coming from all over South and Latin America, and it's coming probably, probably from the Middle East. But we don't know because we have no protection and we have no competence. We don't know what's happening. And it's got to stop. And it's got to stop fast. Yeah, the Spanish were perfect victims to use in order to mobilize his base. For one thing, many members of Trump's base are white, blue-collar workers with a lot of prejudices and often particularly hatred for undocumented workers who they feel are stealing their jobs and challenging their American English-based culture. Many are aware that the tide may slowly turn as the Hispanic population overwhelms the white population in numbers. Many of them also share one of the strange characteristics of many middle-class and blue-collar Republicans. They identify with the upper class, and many still believe that the American dream will take them there. But they also believe that their ticket to that dream has been blocked in many ways by an out-of-control government, all too willing to give free money to undeserving classes of people like undocumented workers and overseas immigrants. So let's go into the discussion of the border statistics. Now, I'm not going to go into the, to the details of what's true or what isn't true right now. I'm going to be more, more of uh, an idealist in terms of what I'd like to see. But I'm going to explain what, what I, some people will talk about catch and release and stuff like that. Here's how I see it. People come through the border and they say they are um, need asylum. Uh, I'm sorry. If they come to the border and they're, they're released by the border control, that that is compelled to go back into another back into another country. How does that hurt us? That's not really an illegal alien who's crossed into the border and done anything. They've just been kicked out. Well, it takes up more time for the border control, but does it hurt? Doesn't hurt jobs in America. It doesn't drain our welfare, health, jails, or public school systems. It doesn't bring drug smugglers, human traffickers in. Although, if we find that they are when they apply to come in, uh, when they or they sneak in and we catch them, they should be arrested and prosecuted if they are those types of truly maleficent people. Perhaps we can't take in all the people who come in to us with critical financial needs or health needs or life-challenging asylum needs. And yes, we do need to do something positive for them. But if we force them to leave or give them shelter until we can help them, they are not illegal um, border crosses. However, if I mean, they're not into the country and doing anything. We're, we're holding them for a while to give them some temporary asylum or something or to, to, to litigate their situation. 
and uh, or we're, we're putting them back. However, if border security does not catch them or catches them and releases them in the United States, there you have the statistic we need. We need the statistic of who's actually getting in and, you know, hiding within this country. Uh, but that is what I would call a, 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 an important statistic. And whatever it is, it's really too much because we shouldn't let people into a sovereign nation who are not going in illegally. So I personally don't care if there's a wall. I don't care if it's more of a technical electronic surveillance grid with human backup and various kinds of physical borders, like components of a wall in certain cases. I don't care if it's a militarized with non-lethal weapons as a prime type of weapon, um, unless, of course, the intruders have lethal weapons, like the cartel drug dealers might, and they must be prepared for that. But keeping people who need help, desperate people, often with children, should not be turned into the cold. The way of course spirituality, which is in all religions, reflects the need for man to love God and love his neighbor, and does not excuse ignoring those in need, especially if you're a big country, and a big country should have a big heart. But besides keeping our nation sovereign and provisionally on welcoming illegal immigrants out, we need to find a place for them. In fact, when I say need, I mean a sacred responsibility. As a just and sovereign nation with a history of creating extraordinary prosperity for many of our citizens, less now than maybe at other times, we need to treat these people like we would ourselves. So in my opinion, we should throw out the idea of simply restricting people, utilizing vicious deterrence methodologies like Republicans recently have, or being callously indifferent or careless about certain immigrants who come in like the Democrats have done, or happy to shut shut as many people out as possible, whether they're sick, under danger from gangs or human traffickers, fleeing from war or civil unrest or just plain miserable poverty bordering on starvation, which some libertarians and a harsher breed of Republicans might favor, saying they brought this on themselves. So I guess this is what I'd like to say is that when you have two opposite sides, like the and stereotype, the Republicans get them out, Democrats bring them in, compassion versus severity, uh, and you try to combine those things and try to find a middle path, I think you'll neutralize both of them. What you really need to do is find something else. So the difference between these political positions of big government, little government, this kind of thing, you want to, when when two, two separate uh, uh, atoms compound themselves into a chemical compound, their properties change. These paradigms need to be different than just looking at them in the ordinary way. And this particular paradigm of bringing people in, you know, and, uh, into a border situation and then sending them to another country that agrees to take them is actually being practiced in the European Union to, a, to an extent. And that's a very good idea. And then nobody's going to feel badly we've done the best for everybody. And yes, we have, we should also contribute to these other countries prosperity, but we also should start contributing to them not having that poverty because we intervene in their in their uh, in their governments and and in their economies and really destroy their possibility of being self-propelled in prosperity. Well, let's now look at another interesting thing. Um, it seems like I'm going to read a book. It's called it's called Remember When Donald Trump Went Other Went After Another Minority Group 20 Years Ago by Brent Johnson and Jonathan Isaiah. This is from NewJersey.com. 
<clears throat> ever since Donald Trump announced a year ago he was running for president, now this is back in 2016, this article it is, and it was before that, he consistently faced sharp crit criticism for his statements about Hispanics and Muslims. In the last few year, weeks alone, the presumptive Republican nominee has called been called a racist for uh, about a judge's Mexican heritage and a bigot for reiterating in the wake, wake of the Orlando sh shooting that the U.S. should fight terrorism by temporarily banning Muslims from entering the country. In both cases, Trump has been under attack for using a broad brush to describe a group of people and making unsubstantial charges. He's dismissed all the allegations, saying in December, I'm the least racist person you have ever met. And he does not back away from his claims. But such allegations aren't new. Two decades ago, Trump faced a similar backlash for remarks he made about another ethnic group when he was in Atlantic City, an Atlantic City casino order, owner. <clears throat> Six years after Trump left Atlantic City, his record there is suddenly relevant again now that he's a front runner for the Republican presidential nod. The billionaire businessman was accused of smearing American Indian tribes as he fought to keep them from operating gambling halls north of New Jersey that he believed would threaten his three Atlantic City gambling halls, as well as one he planned to build in Connecticut. In 1993, Trump told the U.S. House Committee that organized crime is rampant on Indian reservations, an assertion challenged by others at the hearing. In 2000, he secretly funded ads against the Catskills Casino that, according to reports at the time, declared the St. Regis Mohawk Indian record of criminal activity is well documented. Like today, the real estate mogul was accused of making unsubstantiated charges by using people have told me as a source and professed love for those he was targeting. Nobody loves Indians as much as Donald Trump, he told this subcommittee. I'm just going to say, as we'll get into that later, but yeah, that's why he has Andrew Jackson on the wall. <laughs> uh, Trump, he, he really uh, admires Indians and respects their history. Trump was one of many uh, New Jersey casino owners concerned about the threat posed by nearby Indian gambling operations at the time, said Brian Simon, a history professor at Temple University in Philadelphia. Because it was the beginning of the competitive spiral that robbed Atlantic City of its East Coast monopoly, it was their interest to fight back against it. But what were they going to do? going to be the principal argument against it, said Simon, author of the 2004 book, Boardwork of Dreams, Atlantic City and the Fate of Urban America. The fear was legitimate. Four casinos have closed in Atlantic City in recent years and increasing competition from neighboring states, including a pair of Indian tribe-owned gaming, gaming halls in Connecticut, Foxwoods, and Mohegan Sun. At an October 1993 hearing of the House Natural Resources Committee on Native American Affairs, Trump testified that Indians couldn't keep organized crime out of their operations, threatening the entire gambling industry. Quote, the mob is going into the casinos, and what they're doing is, well, they're going into the Indian casinos because that is where the money is, and also that's where the lack of enforcement is, Trump said at the time. An Indian chief is going to tell Joey Killer to please get off his reservation. It's unbelievable to me. House Natural Resources Chairman George Miller told Trump he had never heard more irresponsible testimony during his 19 years on the panel. You have cast upon the Indian nations a blanket indictment that organized crime is rampant for their reservations, he told Trump. For whatever reason, you have a closed mind, Trump told Miller. 
No, Mr. Trump responded. I have a closed mind against evidence that is not substantiated. I have a closed mind about statements that are made about other people in generalities. When pressed about his sources, Trump told the House panel, people know it. People talk about it. Great answer. It's inside. Also at the hearing, Timothy Wapato was executive director of the National Indian Gaming Association, which represented tribal gambling operations, called the organized allegation a smokescreen for efforts by commercial casinos to quash competition from India gaming and get federal resource lawmakers to pass le legislation to help them do so. Congress must not allow itself to be used to implement the racist agenda of a few greedy commercial gambling tycoons, he said, describing such legislation as the Donald Trump Protection Act. Seven years later, an ad campaign against the proposed St. Regis Mohawk Casino in Monticello ostensibly was funded by a nonprofit group, the New York Institute for Law and Society. But it was secretly bankrolled by Trump, according to the New York Temporary State Commission on Lobbying, now the Joint Commission on Public Ethics. The ads attacked the St. Regis Mohawk for a record of criminal activity. To settle the case, Trump and his allies agreed to pay 250000 They also agreed to spend an additional 50000 to publish a statement acknowledging that their ad campaign, quote, did not disclose what they were paid for by Trump hotels and casino um, resorts in, incorporated. In addition, the statement said there were apologies if anyone was misled concerning the pr production of and funding of the lobbying effort. Also involved was Roger Stone, a current Trump advisor, someone who no one is interested in. Amy Benedict, a spokesman for the St. Regis Mohawk tribe, declined to comment. The casino never was built. Although his tactics were abhorrent, Trump was rather prescient that cannibalization of the gaming market would be enormously damaging to the casino industry in Atlantic City, said Bridget Harrison, a political science professor. And uh, But of course, now we see this, this pattern of duplicity with Trump repeatedly claiming to have universal affection for a group while simultaneously smearing them. It's one that he's long practiced. Ask, asking why he went over after the Indian tribes, Trump responded through a spokesman to help New Jersey, where your dying newspaper is based. <laughs> Trump criticized the tribes as, net, as recently as 2011, when he told publisher Steve Forbes, himself an unsuccessful GOP presidential candidate, that Indian casinos were a scam. They have less Indian blood maybe than I do, he said, and they're running reservations and saying that to myself. They don't look like Indians. Nicholas Amato, the former Essex County executive, was the head of the New, York, New Jersey Casino Redevelopment Authority in the early 1980s, and then became vice president at Trump's own casino company, defended Trump against charges of racism, noting the businessman once helped fund two Connecticut tribes. To suggest he's anti-Indian is absolutely untrue, Amato said. That's ridiculous. You don't sponsor an Indian tribe if you're anti-Indian. Fact is, is that even though I believe that Trump is deeply biased in many, many different ways, he's quite willing to ally himself with people he's biased against and be very, very nice to them if it, if it serves his need. And his needs are usually based on money. So now we go to the much closer to the present, to a November 2017 meeting with Navajo veterans of World War II. And uh, let's hear what Trump said at that in 93. When I am 
announce they are going to endorse me. Because if I lose, should I lose? Or if I don't run, they're out of business. Who's going to cover? They're going to cover Bernie? Hey, they're going to cover, like, Sleepy Joe Biden? They're going to cover Pocahontas? Who was... Think of it. Think of it. She of the great tribal heritage. What tribe is it? Uh, let me think about that one. <laughs> Meantime, she's based her life on being a minority. Pocahontas, they always want me to apologize for saying it. And I hereby, oh no, I want to apologize, I'll use tonight. Pocahontas, I apologize to you. I apologize. To you, I apologize. To the, to the fake Pocahontas, I won't apologize. No, it's causing her problems. You know, that name's good because now even the liberals are saying, take a test, take a test. You know, the, I tell you, I, I shouldn't tell you because I like not to give away secrets, but this one, let's say I'm debating Pocahontas, right? I promise you I'll do this. I will take, you know, those little kits they sell on television for $2? Learn your heritage. Guy says, I was born in Scotland. It turns out he was born in Puerto Rico and that's okay, it's good. You know, guy says, I was born in Germany. Well, he wasn't born in Germany. He was born someplace. I'm going to get one of those little kids. And in the middle of the debate, when she proclaims that she's of Indian heritage, because her mother said she has high cheekbones. That's her only evidence that her mother said she had high cheekbones. We will take that little kit and say, but we have to do it gently. Because we're in the Me Too generation, so we have to be very gentle. And we will very gently take that kit and we will slowly toss it, hoping it doesn't hit her and injure her arm. Even though it only weighs probably two ounces. And we will say, I will give you a million dollars to your favorite charity, paid for by Trump, if you take the test and it shows you're an Indian, you know. And let's see what she does, right? I have a feeling she will say no, but we'll hold that for the debates. Do me a favor, keep it within this room because I don't want to give away any secrets. And the press is very honorable. They won't. Please don't tell her what I just said. Well, that's interesting. And we, but let's go on with this. Uh, let's listen to what Whoopi Goldberg's The View thinks of all this in 94. To compare, but I must. Speaking of babies, oh the big baby in the White House spoke at a ceremony. Thank you. I do work on him. Uh, he was at a ceremony that was supposed to have honored Native Americans, but you know, he just can't help himself. Take a look. You're very, very special people. You were here long before any of us were here. Although we have a representative in Congress who they say was here a long time ago. They call her Pocahontas. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> he, he thinks it's funny. He thinks he's funny. He, he's got the, he, like a, a, an adolescent sense of humor. But why would he yeah. think that was the crowd to try I, to share 
the well, nickname and, and, Pope oh, Pontius. And they, they don't call him any or anything. She, he's the only one that uses that term. That's not true. A lot of Republicans. That is not true. A lot of Republicans call her that. Yeah, they, they, well, he started it. I mean, she lied about being Native American, and she what, got she herself lied? into her, yes. Well, yes. she was. She and said a, her family, and I have to say, you know, many black people are told, <laughs> yes, you part Native American too. So yeah. maybe I figure white people she get it family lore. She said, "Quote: These are my family stories. This is what my brother." and I were told by my mom and dad, my mama yeah. and papa, this is our lives and I'm very proud of it. She listed herself as a minority to get into law school at Harvard, for the record, and Cherokee groups have demanded documentation of her an okay. ancestry. Genealogists haven't been able to find it. I have she three, did lie. I have three words I, for her. Yeah. Ancestry.com. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be honest. I, I agree with you, Whoopi. You know, on my father's side of the family, everyone always talked about my great-grandmother, mm -hmm. Lily, mm -hmm. who was uh, Cherokee, I, you know, mm -hmm. but when I did my Ancestry.com, I was 7% Native American. I don't know if it comes from my Puerto Rican side or my African-American side, but we have always had that in our family, that lore. And so I don't want to just completely disbelieve um, Senator Warren when she says, this is what I was told in, in my family. I mean, that that's Cherokee's a lot of people child. have done that. groups have demanded documentation and well, she that's, hasn't been able she to. That's okay, yeah. but, but, but I think you can't discount that that was what she was told. If but she even, says that's what her folks told regardless her. Regardless of the truth know. of it, to refer to someone by Though, is an entirely different thing than telling stories to your family. You're benefiting by getting into Harvard Law School. So that Don't is where this that? controversy... She said that she didn't she, put it she, on her she application. She listed it as a minority. I mean, Wait, I have but, but, but beyond that point yes. about yeah. who's right, to, to refer it was, to someone as a historical figure like Pocahontas... It was listed in the directory. Or a Disney mm -hmm. character, whichever way you know right, her. Right. It, it's, it's the insult is on Pocahontas and like the, the people, the Native Americans. Well, that you know, notice. I thought about it and I asked them before, we were talking about this because it becomes a slur when you, for example, if you say a guy who's Italian is a real Guido, mm -hmm. that's an insult. If you say a Jew is a Jaime, the uh, Jackie, what's his I've name? I've never heard that one. Reggie Jackson. Uh, not Reggie Jackson. No. What's his name? Um, Jackson. Well, Jesse, Jesse Jackson. Jackson. Okay, okay. Jesse Jackson Thank famously you. called New Yorkers a New York Heimie town, Heimie meaning town. there are a lot of Jews. Jews. So yeah. that's why Pocahontas becomes a slur. Yeah. Because well, yeah. Of what I'm, well, the Native they, Americans that the were there said it was a slur. Is that these are Native American code talkers from the Navajo Nation in yeah. Arizona who, great, who gave a great us. set. Yes. Yeah. In Dude, the war. It's a fascinating story, actually, about what they did for us in World War II. And I do think that they deserve the respect well, he just not to be politicized and not to be politicized in that setting. Also, of the optics of having Andrew Jackson. This administration continues to get in its own way with the optics of things well, that, that they're was, advanced. That was troubling to me that this all took place in the Oval Office with the with the uh, portrait of Andrew yeah, Jackson yeah. on the wall. And Andrew Jackson is known, uh, you know, for he was called being the, racist the, the, the Indian against killer in, because yeah. he he moved people. He moved the Native it Americans the, onto the Indian removal the, act. The, trail of tears and i mean yeah. but just that why would you why would you think that this would be smart why would you think that native americans would think that you as the the white guy why would you why would that be amusing well, to he that? doesn't care about the native americans yeah. he only cares about his base he, he thinks it's and when he, he makes a joke pocahontas yeah he's talking to his base he doesn't care about anybody else well and here's he, the thing i base. think this was a mistake though i think it was a gaffe i think it was everything a, I think it comes was out of his mouth gaffe. is a gaffe he, he thought it was funny and but the thing is <laughs> you're just turning back very quickly to andrew jackson you know he chose to have that portrait 
in his Oval Office. And and I don't I think he understands visuals extremely well. Yes, he does. And I think, you know, when you look at these nas white nationalist blogs, they they laud Andrew Jackson. And I think it's dog whistle. I think he is speaking to his yes, base by absolutely. by putting that photo up. So we should I have an ex president to his photo base. up in the Oval Office. Well, but that president, he chose that president <laughs> Why not in Thomas particular. Well, Why not Kennedy? Why not Lincoln? He chose it and they Steve all, Bannon they all also have issues. Lauded every it. one of there's, them. Again, again, if you want to Joy just said, if you <laughs> yeah. want to go down the roster, there's issues with every single president right. starting with bill clinton but going this one back is specific up. this one is specific yeah I this, this has a, this i'm sorry go ahead no, no, it's i just think it's important to know that when you have a native native american veterans who did a lot to help us win world war ii standing in front of a portrait of andrew jackson that's when i have a problem with him hanging it in the oval office well, so, period, i do not so how do the, the republicans feel about the fact that that goes against the military i mean the, the republican well, you want to talk about yeah. going uh -huh. against the military you know a couple of weeks back uh, we just got the, we found the remains, the rest of the remains from that ins insane oh, David craziness that happened over in Niger, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. How come he's not talking about going and kicking Niger's butt? Because he's, he, he's always saying, we're going to come and you messing with our people. We're going to do that. Yeah. You haven't said boo about this. And how come you haven't mentioned, hey, we finally got the rest of, one of our people back. Yeah. Why haven't you done anything about that? Why, Why haven't you, you said anything? Why do you think? I don't know. Because the guy's black, right? I don't know. I just, <laughs> but if you're, if you're going to be the guy that says, you know, I'm making America great and I'm going to take care of my country and you can't, you don't have the cojones to say, hey, Najir, we're going to come over and take a look at what you're doing because no, you messed but up. But it's on his watch and Benghazi was not. Yeah. We'll be back with more hot topics. <laughs> Well, it's very interesting, this Pocahontas thing and what he said, and they're, they're debating whether or not she's really a, quote, Indian. Because my family is actually, not my personal family, my wife's family, um, claims to have been part Choctaw. And also says that some of these records were destroyed in a fire, in a, probably in Okmulgee. So that's in Oklahoma. And so... I've been married quite some time. I've heard a lot of the stories. I know one person in our family has tried to research it and tried to actually see if they were, you know, were recognizable as, as Choctaw because it depends on your blood, how much blood, so to speak, what percentage through the genetic process passes over to you. Are you half or a quarter or whatever? So first of all, it's very difficult to tell. And yes, it was in my family that people talked a lot about the, um, you know, the heritage aspect of it. Uh, and I don't think that they were lying about it. I saw a picture of, I don't really know what her, I think she was the great grandmother. And she looked, she really looked like a, uh, an Indian. I mean, I, if you can tell by profiling your great grandmother. But the point is, it's very hard to tell. And you can't go to Ancestry.com or one of these things and find out information for sure. I try to with my own family. And it's difficult because not everybody records everything. They don't necessarily, it's all depending on files that exist. And they, in, in the case of, say, the black people, some of which were adopted by the Indians, um, you know, when, when they came to Oklahoma, um, who had been themselves gone there on the Trail of Tears, some of those people, uh, would they were ex-slaves. Would they have records? No. So, like Whoopi Goldberg was saying, 
So it's not so easy to tell. And the fact that she, um, she uh, gave herself as, put herself up as Native American and she did it uh, when she went, was going to teach in Harvard. And uh, it's hard to tell whether she was sincere or insincere. I think that she was probably sincere because I've seen that same thing in my own family. And, uh, you know, if you're not into the details of it, what it's like, it's a little bit more uh, difficult to make a sort of a, a crude judgment about it. But let's just see. Here's somebody from Annie Linsky from the Globe staff. She says, and this is in September of 2018, in the most exhaustive review undertaken of Elizabeth's professional history, the Globe found clear evidence in documents and interviews that her claim to Native American ethnicity was never considered by the Harvard Law faculty, which voted resoundedly to hire her or by those who hired her to four prior positions at other law schools. At every step of her remarkable rise in the legal profession, the people responsible for hiring her saw her as a white woman. The Globe examined hundreds of documents, many of them never before available, which reached out to all 52 of the law professors who were still living and were eligible to be in that pound hall room at Harvard Law School. Some are Warren's allies, others are not. 31 agreed to talk to the Globe, including the law professor who was at the time in charge of recruiting minority faculty. Most said they were unaware of her claims to Native American heritage, and all but one of the 31 said those claims were not discussed as part of her hire. One professor told the Globe he's unsure whether her heritage came up, but is certain that if he did, it had no bearing on his vote for Warren's appointment. This is, and this is a quote from somebody I truly uh, have a problem with. This is a made-up issue, said Alan Dershowitz, a Harvard Law professor, emeritus, and occasional Trump defender when asked if her heritage played a role. This is not an issue that's worthy of the president or anyone else. And further, Warren does not have, doesn't have a direct answer for whether her claims, even though they do not appear to have benefited her during her professional rise, might have harmed the efforts of others to press for more diversity in the overwhelmingly white Harvard. She said she chaired the law school's admissions committee for a decade and made it a mission to bring in more women and people of color. She's also proud of her female students who have gone on to become teachers themselves. But it wasn't until 1998 that Harvard Law School added Lani Grenier as the first woman of color on the tenured law faculty. Quote, I wish I had been more mindful of the distinction between heritage and tribal citizenship, Warren said, reflecting on the statistics on her decision to list herself as a Native American. Only the tribes can determine tribal citizenship, and I respect their rights. That's why I don't list myself in the Senate as Native American. Now, I, I want to just comment on that because um, I was tr trying to say it's really hard to tell, uh, especially, uh, you know, if you're depending on documents, the documents have been lost, and the tribe does. But the fact is, if somebody says that they've had, you know, 30 years ago, whatever it was, 20 years ago, that they had uh, that type of heritage and they, they felt identified with it, it's not clear to me that uh, they're lying or trying to cheat somebody by saying they're partly na Native American. A lot of Native Americans are part of Native American. They're just not as much as the full bloods. Warren's answer, this article goes on, won't satisfy all her critics, particularly the persistent gaps in her memory about the specific decisions to list herself as Native American. And both she and her husband seem to understand that any new detail about her career is likely to spark another round of debates. Well, we're, there's more to discuss about this. But we really have to go. We've had a really challenging sh show, 
in our next in a, and but we're going to go on and uh, continue on, on on trying to not only look at what's wrong in our country with our government, but what could be right if we would change things and make a new kind of psychopolitical compound that really made sense. So after, but after our formal com uh, goodbyes, which we'll conclude in a moment, we will play uh, Columbia Gem of the Ocean, which used to be a contender for the national anthem, at least demonstrated by its frequent use in the United States during the 19th and 20th centuries. More recently, it was showcased in the 1957 Music Man, which I actually saw on Broadway a long time ago. Later, it was performed by a U.S. Navy band embarked upon the U.S. Hornet as one of the ship's helicopters recovered the Apollo 11 astronauts from the capsule named Columbia after a splashdown in the Pacific Ocean. So you all take care of yourself and uh, keep cosmic. I am XO2. I am final. M14. Thanks for joining Don Newsom and I on Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition. As we go about developing our new organization, the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment, we hope you will consider the importance of taking part in the electoral processes of your government and asserting the rights you have to vote for the companies you respect and love by casting your ballot as a shareholder or as a consumer with what you buy. We hope soon to make this possible through a social network responsive to your needs to dialogue about your rights as a citizen, but also to be able to effectively act in concert with like-minded colleagues who find representatives of government and business executives will hear your voice and appreciate your message. See you soon. This is Johnny Blue Star. Imagine a dark night. The wind is crisp and cool, the sky cloudless and majestic. Perhaps you are walking alone or with a loved one. Scattered about the night sky are thousands upon thousands of points of light. Look above you, friends of this restless planet. Out there into the night sky, unknown worlds await. Beauty behind imagination, intelligence beyond comprehension. Life in its infinite forms and variations, yet all from the same seed, the same fundamental vibration. A cosmic tapestry of infinite light, yet each thread unique and indispensable. Look above you, out into the vastness of the night sky, for your destiny lies out there, somewhere among the stars. Oh, it's